0: Uh, okay, so let's get started, so um, I sent you all an email right after I got my head screwed back on straight at the end of class on Wednesday about the probability calculation, did you get that? Did it make sense? It should have come to the class list if you're on it. Uh, I can send it again. Um, the, uh, I had a uh, closed pair in the wrong place and it got my algebra messed up, but I'll get to an, a similar example again today, and just to, uh, to impose or to reinforce some structure I wanted to just summarize uh, briefly what we talked about on Wednesday. So I talked about the difference between inferential and descriptive statistics. And the idea being that in descriptive statistics, we're just describing whatever data we have. In inferential, we're using some kind of sample to say something about the larger population or to make an inference back to the larger population. So, from this flows the concepts of population and sample. I didn't realize until I've been doing um, plantation silviculture research for about five years that I actually like squares and rectangles, and now I'm looking at this and discovering I like lists of twos. Okay, The difference between a population and the sample is that with regard to some uh, set of entities that we're interested, the population is the set of all the totality of all observations or possible observations. The sample is the subset that we select from which we use to make inferences back to the larger population. Uh, I gave some examples of descriptive statistics such as the mean, uh, the median, and the variance. I also, uh, I should say median, I also introduced the idea of histograms, which are uh, absolute frequency distributions of data, which are very effective ways, at least in the kinds of systems that I study, that I use uh, histograms all the time to describe my data, it gives you some idea of the shape or how the uh, data are distributed across the range of some attribute that's of interest. And then of course, if you change histograms to relative histograms, rel. Relative histograms by dividing the the histogram by the totality of the sample, you end up with something that's akin to empirical probability. All right. We talked about some probability distributions, uh, discrete. Uh, Here we are again. with a list discrete and continuous. I used an example of the the flip of a coin to illustrate a discrete distribution but any, any situation where the outcomes fall into specific discrete bins or categories can be described by discrete distributions and the ones I used as examples for continuous was the continuous uniform which is something you might used to generate random numbers in Excel, and also the Gaussian, or the normal distribution, probably the the more common or more famous one. We talked about centering and scaling, which are ways of creating, for example, z-scores, where you take any random variable that follows a normal distribution. If you subtract the mean and you divide by the standard deviation, you create something called a z-score or you convert a normal distribution, x, which follows some normal distribution into a standard normal distribution such that z follows a normal with a mean of zero and a standard deviation of one. The reason for doing this is because it makes it easy to make probability statements from the distribution. We can look it up in standard tables without having to integrate over whatever our our normal distribution is as a function of those parameters. And those of you who are in the the recitation yesterday, we talked about using the um, the p norm function and the q norm, which allow, which are ways we can query those distributions to get quantiles or probabilities. Um, sorry, uh, quantiles associated with certain probabilities or probabilities associated with certain quantiles from a standard normal distribution. You can actually, if you want, you can put in mu and sigma as arguments in here and get the same thing from non-standard normals. Uh, but those were functions in R that we talked about using. And then I uh, flubbed the making of probability statements at the end, just how we do that from distributions. You would have learned in basic statistics no matter when you took it, most likely how to use tables. Even your textbook, I think, has a Z table at the end of it. Um, how you look that up and we don't need to look up anything in tables here because we have the tables built right into our software and by the way there are equivalent functions in Excel for those of you who ever wanted to do this. The reality is that most of the time um, we use higher level functions There's like like the t-test in the analysis tool pack or the t-test function in Excel and there are uh, corollaries in R for higher level functions. Okay, before I erase this, any questions? That put a little structure to what I was rambling randomly all over. Not randomly. Okay, good. All right. So we're going to continue on today uh, talking about uh, inferential uh, statistics. Okay. So um, in in uh, inferential statistics, lo and behold, falls into two branches. uh, Estimation and uh, hypothesis testing. Both are making inferences, but in hypothesis testing, we're interested in comparing populations or um, comparing populations against theoretical values. And and these are both inferential because we're going to be drawing our inferences in our hypothesis tests, or we're going to be making estimates of parameters using samples from populations that then infer back to our guesses or ideas about inferences to the larger population. So in estimation, we're talking about things like estimating um, averages. We also can estimate intervals around those averages which are things like confidence intervals. Intervals, we might be estimating medians. Uh, Things that are descriptive of the data that are uh, uh, oh, I forget. I'm gonna remember the other one. Totals. How many trees are there in the world? Somebody did that once just for fun. How many trees are there in the world? Enough. Quite a few, mm-hmm. I would think. Cut them down. Cut them down. <laughs> yeah, and you're 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 you <laughs> I tell the undergrads that all the time. We talk about how to measure the heights of trees. How do you measure the height of a tree? You cut it down and then you take a tape and you run from the top to the bottom. That's the most accurate method to measure the height of the tree. Foresters usually do it using triangles. You have a a tree and and you you know this is a right triangle and you're standing out here and you measure angles to the tree and measure the distances. And if you know these slope distances you can use your standard Sokotoa, your triangle rules to work out tree heights. <clears throat> but there's always error because you don't want to always see the top of the tree You'd have to actually look through the tree here and you're holding instruments and so forth So I always ask them what's the what's the most accurate way to measure the height of a tree <coughs> Turn it into a log Anyway, so there you go. Count them all. Cut them down and count them The problem with that, that's why we sample by the way The problem with that is by the time you cut the last one down, they'd all have grown back Yeah, start all over again yeah, So estimation has two branches. These things here, like averages, medians, or totals, these are point estimates. And things like confidence intervals, these are interval estimates. They're two basic branches. Uh, In hypothesis testing, we're asking questions about uh, comparisons between population parameters, things that we might estimate estimate, uh, between different populations. So we're comparing or testing uh, populations against each other by using samples, or against um, or uh, theoretical values. So. Those of you who've done regression a little bit in basic stats or in, the, in 5701, we talk about a regression coefficient being significant. When we say a regression coefficient is significant, what we're really doing is we're testing, we're saying that it's statistically different from zero. So in this case, we're actually doing a hypothesis test where we're comparing our estimate of a population attribute against a theoretical value zero. In this case, is it not zero? Our null hypothesis is that it is, or alternative is that, is that it's not. But we can also, if we're using regression models, say to estimate rates of processes, we might want to test that the two slope coefficients for two different subsets of the group are equal. If they are, that means the rates for those two groups are equal. So those are testing two populations, in that case, subpopulations against each other. Okay, in, um, in estimation, so I said two types of estimates, point or interval estimates, um, from mathematical statistics, there's a certain branch of statistics which is interested in finding the best estimators for population parameters. Turns out that in most cases, the best estimate from a sample of the population mean is the sample mean. All right, so we use a sample mean as an estimate of our population mean. But if you know that your population is symmetric around its middle, then you can actually use the median as an estimate of the population mean. In fact, it's just as good as the sample mean if your population is symmetric. So here we have, and remember I said these are uh, statistics, and here are parameters. We, use, we commonly use a statistic called the sample standard deviation to estimate the population standard deviation. <clears throat> Other statistics we can use, which is a sample estimate of a proportion to estimate a population proportion. Uh, I don't use a lot of work with proportions, but I like to add it there as another example of these kinds of estimates. Good estimates are un, have very low bias And you can imagine that in the situation where the distribution is symmetric, the median is not biased. But it would be as your distribution gets skewed, biased in the direction away from the skew, right? And um, good estimates are also known as uh, efficient, which means that they have low variance from sampling, and consistent, which means that as the sample size goes up, their bias, if any, goes down. The one thing to remember about estimates is that these things here, these are statistics, these things are variables. These things here are not variables, these are constants. Unless you're um, a Bayesian, in which you view these as not constants. But we're not gonna go there because I'm not a Bayesian, I'm a frequentist. Truth is absolute. The trick, of course, with these constants is we don't know them. That's why we do this whole business. These things are variables because if we take a different sample, we're going to get a different sample mean, a different sample median, a different sample standard deviation, or a different sample proportion dependent on the problem, right? So if these things are, are variables, this means that if we collect a sample mean this, uh, more than once, all those sample means are going to be different. They may all be uh, individual estimators, but they're all different. The second thing is that because these are variables, these um, these variables have distributions. And the distributions we call, so if we go out and we take a sample of trees and we plot a histogram showing the number of trees by diameter class, that shows us the distribution of the data in our sample. If we calculate the mean from that sample and put it aside and then go and do it again and again and again, we're now calculating a whole bunch of means and those means themselves have a distribution. And if we were to plot that distribution, that would be the distribution of The sample means. So we're talking about two different distributions here in most cases. One about the data and one about the sample mean. Uh, The most famous sampling distribution, this thing here by the way, these are called sampling distributions because they arise from parameter estimates that come from samples and the most famous one of these sampling distributions is a sampling distribution of the mean which we use uh, as part of the Central Limit Theorem. Okay, the Central Limit Theorem. My PhD advisor was such a nerd that he offered to pay for any one of his graduate students to have a tattoo of the proof of the Central Limit Theorem. Since I decided that I would like to meet a nice young lady and get married someday, I should probably get a tattoo of something else, or better yet, since I'm a wimp, I should not get any tattoos at all. I said, you know, instead, why don't you just give me a bonus on my stipend this semester? You know, That would be just fine. Anyway, I think it came with a condition. I probably had to do the proof on my, on my prelims instead. So here's how the sampling distribution of the mean or the central limit theorem works. So we take a sample of size n from the population, and we calculate the sample mean and do this repetitively. Okay. Now, the trick here is that we don't, in practice, repetitively sample from any population that we're interested in. I mean, if you if you were actually interested in going out and doing some statistical inference on a stream or a stand or a, po- a population of organisms in an area, you wouldn't go out, take a sample, then come back and take another sample, and come back and take a, another sample. you just go out and take a sample three times the size once, right? Unless you're interested in change, but that's not what we're talking about. We're just talking about estimation at this time. So if we take a... Take a sample of size n uh, from the population of size n, and repeat k times. What we're getting is this out here. And calculate the mean for each one of those samples. You have two distributions. that are at play here. And they're related. You have the sampling, the the distribution of the data. This is your population. And let's say I'm estimating tree diameter. So the the question of course is, um, I have no idea what the shape is of that distribution. What's the distribution of the diameters of all trees in Michigan? I have no idea what it is. I know that it has some kind of mean, it has to have a mean, it has to have some kind of variance, but I don't know what they are. Now if I was to repeatedly sample from all trees in Michigan and calculate the mean, I can generate another distribution, the distribution of the sample means. And The trick is the Central Limit Theorem tells us something about this distribution. It tells us that this distribution, well, first of all, I guess I didn't get to my second point, which is the sampling distribution. This thing here, this distribution is a probability density function. It, has a, it, it, it can be used to calculate probability. We know that if the, the sample size is large enough, that the distribution of this thing is normal or Gaussian, if n is large enough. And we'll get into what that means. We know that it's Gaussian, or that it's normally distribution, if n is large enough. Um, We know that if n is not large enough, then it follows a (laughs) t-distribution with uh, n minus 1 degrees of freedom. So I guess I started off with a 1 here. This was my number 2, that it's a probability density function. And this here is my number 3, the shape of the distribution. Since I said I like lists, but I forgot to start my list there. So number 4 is that any one of these sample means here is an estimate of the population mean any one of them if you sample randomly is an unbiased estimate of the population mean but it's also an estimate of the mean of the sampling distribution of the mean and it's really important and this is what messed me up for years is that I didn't understand there were two distributions here. One that I, no- I never know the shape of. I mean, you might know the shape of the population, but you don't need to. And in most cases, we don't know the precise shape of it. We don't know if it's normal or binomial, or not binomial, we don't know it's, if it's not binomial. We don't know if it follows some exponential or continuous uniform, we have no idea. But we do know the shape of this distribution is Gaussian. And from a single sample from this distribution, we can estimate its population mean. We can also estimate the population mean of that distribution with a single sample, and that's pretty cool. And we can also, any single sample standard deviation is an estimate of the population standard deviation. But any, Any sample standard deviation divided by the square root of the sample size is an estimate of the standard deviation of the sampling distribution of the mean. What we've set up here, or what has been shown, is that without knowing very much, if anything at all, just a sample from our population of interest, we know everything we need to make probability statements about the distribution of sample means if we repetitively sampled. Because we know this is Gaussian. We know it's normal. And we know we have an estimate of its mean and of its standard deviation. And once you do that, you can then create, actually, I was going to say, we call this thing s over root n the standard Error of the mean. And we can use z scores to, we can use centering and scaling to create z scores by substituting into the same formula our estimates of these parameters. So we're going to say. Uh, well, anyway, yeah we can we can use a sample mean here and uh, uh, population mean. Now, that's supposed to strike you as rather cool. any any questions about that? All right, now where I got lost the last day was making probability statements about from using z-scores. So I'm going to try to be a little bit more deliberate today when I show you this. What we've talked about here first are getting point estimates. So x-bar is an estimate of mu, also of mu of the sampling distribution, the mean of the sampling distribution. S is an estimate of sigma, but S over root n of sigma x-bar, or the standard error of the mean. Those are point estimates. We can also generate interval estimates, and here's how they work. If you go to a normal distribution, go to your, your z-table, All right, you have a normal distribution, and you, you, you can find little points out here in that distribution where the probability that you add up the two of those equals 0.05 or 5%, right? These things here correspond to observations from a normal distribution that would be unusual. Can we agree on that? Because if I was to draw a number from a normal distribution, how often would it be out here 2.5% of the time? Because that's what a probability distribution says. It it tells you the distribution, the probability of any given quantile coming from this distribution. And this is a standard normal distribution. All right. If you go to your Z table, or you use that Qnorm function in R, and give it a P. Right. In this case, it'll give you the, the, the negative Z quantile. Here is equal to minus 1.96 and because the distribution is symmetric, we know it's 1.96. And this is the the root behind, and I mentioned this on Wednesday, the root behind where we come up with, we always use x bar plus or minus two times the standard error for confidence intervals because that's pretty close to two. And in fact, two is a little bit bigger, which means if we did just assume that value was two, we'd give someone a confidence interval that's a little wider than it really is. And that's better than giving someone a confidence interval that's narrower than it really is. Okay. So I can actually express this as a probability statement. I can say the probability from a z-distribution following falling in between minus 1.96 and plus 1.96 is equal to 0.95. That's equivalent to, um, to an ex- probability statement for this area in the middle here. If the area in the tails is... 5% then the area in the middle has to be 95% because the, the total, the sum of probabilities under any distribution has to add to 1, fair enough? But I've, I've written over here my little z-score, and I can actually substitute that in for z, so I can put in here x-bar minus mu over sigma well, and actually I'll, I'll, I'll put in the um, the sample standard deviation, because we're going to put in its estimates, s over root n, like that. So I'm just going to substitute for z, and I'm going to be careful to put my parentheses in the right spot. I'm going to substitute for z my centered and scaled version that's being drawn from my sampling distribution. Okay, And then we can use a little bit of algebra to simplify this and solve so we leave just the population mean in the middle. So that is equivalent to uh, minus 1.96 times s over root n less than x bar minus mu less than 1.96 times s over root n. I've just divided all or multiplied all three parts of the inequality here by s over root n. And then if I want to isolate mu in the middle, I can subtract s bar from each of these, or x bar from each of these, and then I want to multiply through by minus one because I want to make this positive in the middle. And what that does is it flips around the, uh, the greater than sign. So what I get here is, that's supposed to be a p. I'll, I'll, do, it the other, I'll do it the short, longer way. Um, I'm going to have minus X bar, minus 1.96. All right. Does that make sense? Just subtracted X bar from each of these three parts of the inequality. If you multiply that thing through by minus 1 to get rid of the negative in here, the, the, uh, the less than's become greater than's. I had to look that up from my grade eight math when I did this. Okay, and what this thing is, as the derivation of a 95% confidence interval on the mean. That's where it comes from. So it's the central limit theorem that gives us that. And we call this an interval estimate because we're trying to establish some level of confidence in our estimate of the population mean from a sample mean. That's why it's called a confidence interval. If this is only, again, this is all only true if N is large. If N is not large, you substitute T instead of Z. And so you'd get a different quantile here. This 1.96 is a Z quantile. You'd replace it with a T quantile with N minus one degrees of freedom. We commonly abbreviate this thing to just say x-bar plus or minus 1.96 times s over root n is a 95% confidence interval if n large enough. All right, how do you decide if n is large? Well, we always teach this this way in statistics because it, it, it's nice and pure with a Z distribution, whereas the shape of a T distribution depends on your degrees of freedom. And when I learned this, we always said large means a sample size of 30 or more. Now, my, one of my committee members when I was a master's degree student at, explained to me his understanding of where we came up with 30. And the answer was that people had to print tables in textbooks, and printing presses commonly had 30 lines of text or 35, and so by 30 it was getting pretty close and so they just cut it off there. Well it turns out that if you have a Z distribution that looks like that, a T distribution is always wider for any given degrees of freedom, and as the degrees of freedom increases the T distribution becomes narrower, until eventually with a significantly large enough degrees of freedom, it becomes indistinguishable from Z. And if you just play with this sometime, because normally we have a couple significant digits here in our calculations, things like DBH are measured to the nearest tenth. If you play with this sometime, it turns out the T becomes relatively indistinguishable from the Z when, the, when N reaches around 100. So what I've taught the undergrads in the past is actually large means a sample size of a hundred. But actually, since T approaches Z as N gets large enough, and since we're not using paper tables anymore, we're using statistical tables in software, why not just use T all the time? If Z is large, if, if N is large enough, then, if N is one trillion, okay, there's no difference between T and Z. So my code is much simpler. So actually, what I tell people to, to do is forget this whole z-based calculation and just go straight to a t anyway because you always get a better answer uh, if you use I'm, I'm a little bit more conservative answer too because the trick is that if you use a z when you shouldn't, you're gonna end up picking a quantile out here when you really should be down here and clearly the, the this quantile zero is in the middle these are these are centered on zero if you pick this quantile from a t that's a, that's equal to 25% probability it's going to be a lot smaller or concordantly a lot bigger you're going to end up with confidence intervals that are wider than if you used a z that's we call that in statistics being conservative like telling people you're less confident than you really are is better than telling people you're more confident than you really are all right so basically don't don't use the z always use a t. We rarely ever know the, uh, the population variance, right? So you leave yeah. That for z? That's you can leave that for z. So that's another example. Thank you for bringing that up. If you do know the population variance, this is only so I'm assuming in this case that you're estimating the population variant, uh, standard deviation with s. If you know the population variance, then you can you don't estimate it. You know it. Directly, then you can continue to use a Z. You'll still be conservative if you use a T, but but I don't know of any problem I've encountered where I know the population variance, but I don't know the mean. That, that's very rare, but you can do it. There are a couple other cases where we use approximates, um, like the binom- normal approximate to the binomial, where we it recommends using a Z, uh, but you're always going to be a little wider with the T. And uh, the software, I don't to be honest, I don't even know what goes on under this uh, under the hood a lot of these software packages, but I, I think it would be uh, reliable to say that um, they tend to be conservative when they, when they can be. Thank you, that's a good a qualifier. Yes? Actually, I, thought most software packages automatically to uh, I don't know. I would think that if you're using sample formulas, they would probably default to Ts, but I don't know uh, what goes on under the hood. Any questions? Yeah? So how would an R function be different uh, using Z or T? Would there be different coding? If you're using an R function to calculate a confidence interval, it'll just do it for you, and it probably will assume, and I know, like, in Excel, if you use the confidence interval functions or the t-test functions, for example, you can tell it which type you have, whether you know the population standard deviation or whether you're estimating it. Uh, I, I don't use the R functions. I don't do a lot of confidence intervals in R uh, so I don't know. But usually functions like um, the, the, linea- the LM, the linear regression models, it'll give you T statistics automatically. Because you don't, you don't know the, in that case, you'd need to know the population residual variance from a regression line. And you, you, it would be extremely weird to know the regression coefficients but not know the variance. So it'll, it'll be reporting T's all through. The, actually, if you go in the literature, how many do you see Z's in the literature, reading papers? Usually you see T's, not Z's. So I think the software by default produces Z's. Or t's produces t's, and uh, a lot of them. A lot of the approximate ones, when you get into into uh, techniques where you're using um, optimization, n- uh, nonlinear optimizations, or so forth, they use nonparametrics, which tend to use t's as well. So, okay. So that's interval estimation. That's how we derive the confidence interval, and uh, I. I I try to beat this into my undergrad classes, um, but I always thought this was interesting because it was never taught to me this way, and uh, it made the central limit theorem and the sampling distribution seem uh, so much more useful. All right, let's talk about hypothesis testing. Any any other questions, by the way? Yes? There are many different nonparametric tests for situations where you have problems, extreme problems with normality. So it turns out that the central limit theorem holds broadly irrespective of what the distribution is of the population unless the distribution of population is highly non-symmetric. And so there are some scenarios where you have, uh, you wanna make inferences about populations that are highly bizarre and we use non-parametric methods that don't assume anything about underlying distributions, or if we don't know something about the sampling distribution of a statistic. And those, uh, I, it's not my area, but those tend to use T-based tests. And that's just an observation from whenever I read journal articles that talk about non parametrics So like Poisson? You, you can, uh, the Poisson regression, for example, can be parametric. Doesn't it? Yeah, uh, no, it depends on how you estimate things. Any other questions? Okay. Okay, hypotheses are conjectures, like I said, about populations. And I like to motivate this by an example. We tend to take questions, research questions, so hypotheses about systems, and we recast them as statistical hypotheses when we're doing statistics. So the example I use is, well, we, we're, we're, um, or an example we can use is that we're interested in whether the long-term average climate in the UP is deviating from an expected trend, and we're worried about climate change. We can set this up as a set of statistical hypotheses right off the bat, but if things are all okay, the long-term average temperature is 68 degrees Fahrenheit. If things are not okay, the long-term average temperature is something else. And <laughs> I write something else right away. This can be cast as um, as one-sided hypothesis too, depending on how you want to structure the problem. So a couple things about hypotheses that we forget is that usually when we cast a statistical hypothesis, we're talking about a population parameter. We know we're going to test this with a sample but that parameter may very well have notable and important units, like degrees Fahrenheit. And we, we often, I think there's a tendency in statistics to stop reporting units sometimes, which makes it resonate a little less practically with people, so if you catch me in situations uh, not including units when I should, please let me know. The other thing is by convention we use this notation this capital H with a little not, people say it's a not, somebody put a, put a zero there as the null hypothesis and we use a little A for the alternative hypothesis. When we structure a hypothesis test statistical in the and pearson paradigm, whatever it is, we tend to put the hypothesis that we wish to reject as the null. We're worried about climate temperature having long-term average temperatures going up and so. We're going to worry only if we can reject the null hypothesis that the climate trend is the long-term average that we think it's been in the past. So the hypothesis you're going to take action on that you want to reject is the null hypothesis. The null hypothesis also always has an equal sign in it, not a less than or a greater than. It always has an equal sign. And the reason for this is because without that being an equal sign, we cannot specify a fixed value of alpha our type 1 error rate, we'll talk about that in a minute, our, our alpha, if this doesn't have an equal sign, then our old saying of alpha equals 0.05. If you, put a, if you put a greater than or less than in here, this becomes a greater than or less than, and that's not the way we like to, to structure hypothesis tests. Okay, so we go out and we collect a sample, and uh, I've got some examples, we collect a sample of n equals 36, climate stations, we go and collect the data from those climate stations and we calculate a sample mean temperature of some value and we know that 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 also has a a standard deviation. We can assume for this problem that it's 3.6 and by the way, those things have um, units as well and we calculate some sample mean, let's say it comes out to be 70 degrees Fahrenheit. So here's the data we got from a sample Now, how do we decide? How do we decide whether we reject our null hypothesis or not? Well, the easiest answer is, we know we'd reject the null hypothesis if the sample mean temperature was really far away under this two-sided null, really far away from 68. Like if it was 10 million, first of all, we'd all be dead. Secondly, it would be so far from 68 that the null hypothesis can't be true. The question is, how do we nominate far And we can nominate far by choosing some value that we know is rare under the null hypothesis. And the central limit theorem tells us that the sampling distribution of this mean is going to be Gaussian and it's going to have a mean equal to the mean and a standard deviation equal to this thing divided by the square root of n. So we know something about the sampling distribution of the mean. So we can actually make probability statements about the likelihood of getting certain sample means if this null hypothesis is true, and if we can figure out a, a sample mean that is sufficiently unlikely if the null, mean, null hypothesis is true, then we can use that as a decision criteria, evidence that the null must be false. The question is, how do we decide what far is well we can, we, the best way to illustrate it is to draw the sampling distribution of the mean. So, we've only got one sample here, but you know that this thing is a variable. If we were to sample repeatedly, we'd get different values of X bar, and the distribution would be Gaussian because of the central limit theorem. Right? It's going to be centered on what if the null hypothesis is true? 68, yeah, it's got to be centered on 68, if the null hypothesis is true. So, we can nominate a value that under the null hypothesis is so rare that we conclude if we get that value, the null hypothesis must be false. And we choose, we choose those things to be called the rejection region or the critical values, and you guys get to decide what they are. We're going to call this some upper region and some lower region. And if we draw, uh, we take a sample and we, f- we find our sample is out here or out here, above or below, or in the rejection region, then we declare it just too weird for the null to be true. It must be false. How do you choose these values? Well you choose them by choosing the probability that falls into these regions. And that probability we call alpha, or the size of our rejection region, our critical value, if you like. This thing here is alpha over two. Now, how do you pick alpha, the probability? Well, most people pick 0.05. And why do they pick 0.05? Why why 95%? The answer is most people pick 0.05 0.05 for alpha, because that's what most people pick. Yes? I'm trying to remember, is alpha over 2, is that the area, or is that that? It's the area. It's the area underneath here. Because this is a probability distribution, so the area has to, of those two has, the area under the whole curve has to add up to 1. Is that a thought? Yeah, well, if I remember right, they picked 95% because it's a compromise between minimizing the chance of making a Type 1 error and increasing the chance of making a Type 2 error. Uh, it depe- it increases- depends. on the the effect size. Depends on the true the true value, whether the null is true or whether the alternative is true. But yes, there is a. Comp- we'll get into that in just a minute. The reason we pick um, 5% here is because mo- mo- that's what most people pick. Um, actually, I, ten, I believe that because this is what I did this example to my in my undergrad class And it's a fun thing to do. I'll only get it started and you guys can finish it Let's say I'm going to I'm, I'm going to pick a coin out of my pocket and I'm going to tell you that I think this coin is That this coin is fair and I'm going to test it by flipping it, right? So I flip the coin and I get a heads, and I flip it again, and I get a heads, and I flip it again, and I get a heads, and I keep flipping it, and I keep getting heads. At what point do you tell me that you no longer believe that the coin is fair? And I pull my undergrad students, and I, I do go on here, number of heads in a row, All right? Usually there's one troublemaker who says, one! No, actually, you don't even have to flip it, Robert. I know you're a dastardly bastard. That's got to be... Well, you can actually calculate the probabilities of these because the joint probability of any cumulative set here is equal to the, multi- the, the product of all the individual probabilities. So, the, so if a coin is fair, the probability of getting one head is equal to 0.5. The, if the coin is fair, the probability of getting two heads in a row is 0.5 squared. Three in a row is 0.5 cubed, right? If you, I dare you to work those out, but first pick the number and then work these out. Most people... You have to pick the number first, otherwise it's always 0.5. If you're only going to flip it once. Yeah, no, but I'm talking about if I... When would you tell me to stop? I think the coin is unfair. Most people are down here around six or seven, and the probability of getting six or seven heads in a row, if the coin is fair, comes right around... 0.5 or 5%. And this is what my advisor, Andrew Robinson, did, except he did it with a more clever example of flipping two coins at a time, which gave you a more complicated probability here. And I'd stop at this example because it's easy. It turns out the probability somewhere, I can't remember what it is, you guys can do it with a calculator, it turns out to be around 0.5 or 0.05 or 5%. So if you'd like, we have all built in BS detectors that are pretty darn sure it's BS when it happens less than. Uh, five times out of 100. It can't be true if, if, if something happens less than five times out of 100. So actually, that's why, for me, that's why I really like 0.05, because that's actually what, every year I did this in biometrics, other than that one troublemaker who picked zero. But they were just being troublemakers. Anyway, all right. So we're, we're, usually we use alpha equals 0.05 in this test. And I've only got a couple minutes left, so I'm going to quit there. We'll finish this on um, Wednesday. Uh, I'm going to put some homework uh, from the textbook on the Canvas page uh, probably this weekend. Uh, You can get started with that. We can work on it um, in recitation. Those of you who can't make the recitation, if you want to contact me and we can set up a different time that we can get together, that's fine. Uh, and I want to, I will solve one of the problems using R, and I'll show you that in class on Wednesday as well to get you started with it. So you might want to leave it, and I'll give you some time to work on it. Uh, please finish reading that first chapter of the book if you can, and uh, spe- and have a good weekend. Uh, do your best, anyway. Yep? So I discovered the run if function in R okay. for, for generating a random number. No. The the r unif yeah r unif yeah so is it, this is going to give you basically random if you specify like zero to six it's going to give you numbers in a random distribution between zero and six uh, uh yes depending on the arguments of the function usually these functions the first argument they want is the number of random numbers right so if for example you wanted say like a, you wanted like yeah, I'd say like our unif so, yeah. 1000, and if I put in here uh, you know, 10, 30, right. it should give me 1,000 numbers that fall between 10 and 30 right from right. a continuous uniform distribution. Is there any way to like, tell this to run like a bunch of times? Mm-hmm. Like run if you basically put it inside and then say like, run 50 times or something like that. Because you just want 50 sets of random numbers? Right. Um, yeah. yeah? Okay. Did you just put like... No. Okay No, what, you, what, what I would do see, what I would do if you wanted to generate, um, do this 50 times, is I would probably load them into a matrix, okay. by instead I multiplying this by 50, I see. and then putting this thing into a matrix I'd say matrix, and then I'd say n rho equals 50. Okay. And what this will do is it will generate your 50,000 random numbers, put in a matrix which has 50 rows, and treat each of those 50 rows like a as a sample. Yeah. Okay. And I do that. I, I used to have a homework problem in this class where we would simulate the, the sampling distribution, mm-hmm. but uh, better just to do, there's better problems in the textbooks, so we're going to do that. But we did exactly this okay. in that homework problem. This is, in you're thinking of our that biometrics first assignment from last year? Kind of, yeah. yeah. I mean, well, I did that exact same assignment in this class. Okay, just using R instead. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. Okay. yeah. yeah of but I'm not going to do it anymore because <laughs> th- there's better stuff to do. But okay. yeah, cool. all right. All right.